So this is uh, Advanced Patient Care Theory 1, Unit 1, Part 3, uh, ACP Assessment. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, is there a difference between ACP Assessment and PCP Assessment um, in terms of history taking, um, hands-on exams? Generally speaking, no. But uh, there are some things you're going to look for and consider at an ACP level that you might not have thought about at a PCP level, and that's largely just to um, uh, protect yourself in terms of identifying patients who perhaps don't need ACP intervention but may need a ACP intervention uh, at some point so you want to uh, you might want to take the role of lead attendant on certain calls um, you may not have thought about in the past I can tell you um, that um, when you start out typically you'll probably attend more calls than you normally would um, and take over more calls than you normally would because you're going to be a little scared in the beginning and a little controlling uh, and protective of your own ass and uh, over time you'll start to relax a little bit but uh, honestly uh, you know when I do when I do calls I sort of look at the patient and think uh, I think two things one is there a potential need for an ACP intervention between here and the hospital and two even if there isn't a real significant potential am I going to get in trouble by my base hospital if I don't attend? As, I'll give you an example. Um, so we have this guy who uh, attempted suicide. He drove to a parking lot down by the lake and he cut both his wrists and he sat there and bled for a few hours and that didn't really seem to do the trick. Uh, and then uh, the sun went down and he cut his neck right across, lost quite a bit of blood there but was still alive. So he called his daughter and said, you know, he tried to kill himself, but was unsuccessful and she should probably send an ambulance. And we got there and um, there was a lot of blood in the car. It was just like a big thick pool of coagulated blood. And um, his, his neck injury was pretty impressive. Uh, he had pressure, initial pressure was 46 systolic and um, had a heart rate of 150 something. And um, so what do you do for this guy? His airway's fine and uh, he's just hypovolemic. And so um, we were second car in, first crew was a PCP crew. We were an ACP crew. We were uh, 15 minutes from the end of our shift and uh, we were gonna have to take him to a trauma center. And I seriously thought about just sending him with the PCP crew because all they've got to do is start a line and give some fluids for this guy. That's really like we weren't going to do anything. Uh, I honestly didn't, wasn't worried about his airway. Um, but, but I thought if I don't go, someone's going to look at that form and go, Rob Terrio, why the hell didn't you go with that guy? <laughs> like, are you insane? So, uh, so anyway, I hopped in the back of the PCP car and went to the trauma center with him. So, uh, you know, would I have made a difference? No. Like, the only thing I might have done for this guy is if he, you know, managed to somehow exsanguinate between there and the hospital, I might have intubated him, but, you know, the crew, other crew probably could have managed him just as well, maybe even better with a BBM and an OPA or something, or a King LT, but, um, I was just covering my butt. Uh, and 
Uh, I think the PCP crew wanted me to attend on it as well because they wanted me to cover their butts as well. <laughs> so, so this is what I mean is, is, is uh, you know, sometimes you're going to err on the side of attending on a call just because you're perceived as a higher medical authority and you worry about, you know, what's going to happen if uh, the call is scrutinized. And uh, so even if uh, what you end up doing doesn't make um, a big difference. So this whole, uh, you know, merging a PCP and ACP and should we move to ACP right across the province is a real interesting question to debate, right? Uh, because, you know, you look at the numbers, only three to 5% of the calls require ALS intervention. It's a really small number. And so there's a whole question of if you have ACPs right across the province, even in rural areas, how are they gonna maintain their skill set? Um, and, uh, are they going to be able to maintain their skill set in a way that they feel reasonably comfortable, confident uh, doing interventions when they're uh, when they're out there? Uh, my personal view is that we need a. I think we need a provincial service that covers rural areas, much like uh, the OPP. You know, where you you get in the beginning and you rotate around. You might work in some fairly busy smaller towns and work your way up to. Uh, Northern Ontario and back again. Uh, you know, we probably need a mix of provincial and upper tier municipality services. But, uh, but we'll see because, you know, if if the Ford government has its way and we actually go from um, 52 upper tier municipality services to seven, uh, then some really seasoned. Um, urban and suburban paramedics are probably going to get uh, the opportunity to work in more remote areas and that'll be good for the remote areas and might be good for some of you seasoned medics who are ready to take a little bit of a break you know from the blood sweat and tears of working in an urban center uh, Ante, you know what you know what Halton's like. I don't know what your other services are like, but but Halton is beautiful because you got Oakville, Burlington, where you work your ass off, and then you drive through the country to get to Acton, and you know it's a nice it's a nice mix. It's you know you hate yourself less when you work in a place like that. But Toronto, you know, um, there's no escaping Toronto. Right? <laughs> there's no there's there's no you know forested farm areas to go through that. that uh, uh, can you? Where where can you go? James Bay. Oh no, I'm talking about if you're working in Toronto. No, I've done both. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So you go to James Bay to relax and to no, just. No, I got out of James Bay because I went crazy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can do both extremes, but what I'm saying is, you know, I think when I retire, I might put together this board game where where you work in an urban center and you. You know, as you gain points, you slowly work your way up north. Where it's, I don't know if that's every paramedic's dream is to, you know, migrate to the north, where it's a little more relaxing, unless, unless you work in a rural area and you're anxious to get a busy place. I don't know, but uh, um, so. Um, So uh, ACP, um, as I say, uh, the, you know, the scopes of practice are getting closer and closer together and, and the scope of practice for ACP is shrinking all the time. And, and uh, of course, we're, 
Uh, I hate to use this analogy, but in a lot of ways, we're pawns to the medical directors, you know, in the sense that the medical directors can decide. Um, they don't really understand or uh, care about our professional issues. They, they just look, uh, which in some ways is a good thing. Um, their focus is on the patient. So if they feel, you know, um, there's a, a group of patients who are deprived of a certain type of care that PCPs could easily provide, then they're probably going to add something to the scope of practice for PCPs to, to allow that to happen. Uh, pain management is a good example, and I think that was a good addition, right, adding Gatorolac and ibuprofen and acetaminophen. I'd like to see intravenous acetaminophen added to the PCP and ACP scope of practice, and maybe even move away from narcotics completely. There's, uh, talk about that. There's a couple of eMERGE departments in the U.S. that have moved completely away from all narcotics and uh, managing pain using other, other meds. Um, we can talk about that. Um, so uh, we've already talked about. So uh, what are your responsibilities? Um, really, um, uh, those of you who work under uh, the Sunnybrook Base Hospital, you know that their policy is that the ACP is the medical authority and is responsible for all patients. And if you read it and you were to follow it verbatim, it, what it really means is uh, you're responsible for assessing the patient and then deciding whether or not the patient uh, can be cared for by your PCP partner, which in my mind is just an insane approach. Um, so. So uh, the way I read that policy as well is that if my PCP partner assesses the pa is, is the lead on the patient and assesses the patient and I'm not paying attention because I'm not usually paying attention, I'm doing something else like taking vital signs and not listening to the history um, you know, while my partner's attending uh, or not listening attentively um, and my partner uh, misses something that would suggest that I should be attending the patient um, that, uh, and if the patient goes into the back with my PCP partner and needs ACP but doesn't get it, technically I'm still responsible. And that's kind of an insane policy. I don't know about the other base hospitals, if you have similar policy, can you tell me? No? Not that you're aware of? Yeah. Or have you read any of the policies? I think that's the feeling. That's a perception, yeah. 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 Uh, it was worse uh, 10 years ago. Um, it, it changed dramatically when PCP started getting trained in IV therapy, at least in, uh, under the Sunnybrook Base Hospital. It really changed quite dramatically. We're under CBER. Yeah. And they're very, uh, even if you have, like CBER's been pretty good with saying uh, provision of care, so your uh, PCP and the attending the call and your patient changes. Um, switching out with your ACP partner, the base hospital doesn't have an issue with it, but I think yeah. a lot of services have policies that say if the patient's X, Y, and Z, then ACP has to be in the back, even if the ACP feels their PCP. Right. Yeah, so you're kind of torn between those two um, mindsets. And, um, and that's fine. That is the way it's supposed to work. You know, your PCP partner um, assesses the patient, and if they feel they the ACP should attend or something happens in the back of the ambulance and they feel they should switch, they switch. But what happens when the PCP, um, things go wrong and the PCP doesn't tell you to stop the vehicle and come to the back of the ambulance? Then what happens? What happens is the ACP gets in trouble, which is uh, an unfortunate, um, unfortunate situation. 
but um, uh, it's, uh, I guess you'll see. <laughs> you'll find out what it's like, or you'll see what it's like. And, uh, and maybe it won't be so bad. I mean, I've lived with that cloud over my head for the last, uh, for 35 years. Um, you know, always thinking about, um, thinking about the patient, but also thinking about uh, what's going to happen if, if I'm not the lead on a particular call. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, when you go through the different levels, so you guys are working PCP. I feel badly for you because PCP, uh, in my mind, is tough because you've got very restrictive protocols. Uh, and there's not, uh, not nearly as much leeway as you think. And, uh, you'll appreciate this if you go on to CCP. ACP, pretty restrictive as well, very conservative in Ontario. Ontario has some of the most conservative medical directors in the entire country, definitely in North America. When you work CCP, you've you got a lot of freedom, a ton of freedom. You can do pretty much whatever you want. <laughs> you got my podcast, <laughs> I know I, I recognize my voice. <laughs> um, you can do pretty much anything you want. Uh, you've got like, almost an unlimited scope of practice, unlimited number of drugs you can administer. Even, you can even administer drugs that you don't carry with you uh, as long as you read the drugs. And you, you, like if you're in a hospital and they have a drug that you want to administer uh, after a conversation with a base hospital doc, you just read up on it and make sure you know what you're doing and you give it. Um, and you've got incredible freedom to make decisions. Um, and then uh, that freedom diminishes as the levels, as you go back down in levels. And uh, so it's always interesting. It's, so it's really a combination of, um, you know, thinking about the patient, thinking about your covering your butt, and thinking about the politics. Um, so uh, in terms of assessments, um, if, um, if I can give you some basic um, guiding principles, it would be if there's any uh, concern for an actual problem or a potential problem with airway, breathing, circulation, or um, airway and breathing as a result of a neurological impairment, then you should probably be attending on the call. Uh, the second guiding principle would be if your gut is telling you you should maybe attend, then you should probably attend even if it's an hour before the end of the shift and you've attended three calls and your partner's attended two and you really want to get off on time, um, you probably want to cover your butt because it's that one time that something's going to go wrong and uh, you should probably attend. I remember at, at one time, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when um, uh, I probably attended three out of every four calls uh, just because the base hospital was so restrictive about what I should attend on. Uh, that's gotten much, much better now. And usually it's one for one. How many of you work with ACPs, just out of curiosity? Okay, good. So you do calls one for one, typically? Yeah? That's good. Um, how many of you have been to EMS conferences in the U.S.? Um, so yeah, if, if, um, if, you, if you're at all concerned with an airway, if, if the patient's not protecting your airway, even if you don't think you're going to intubate that patient, you've got to be attending the call, even if it means all you're doing is putting in an OPA uh, in to maintain the patient's airway and maybe doing bag valve mass ventilation, the ACP, uh, you'll want to attend on, on that call. 
So, um, so da, 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 da. let's see. Um, and um, I was going to say, um, what do we got here? Yeah. So uh, the exception with with respect to airway control would be a cardiac arrest, in which case you're both going to be in the back of the ambulance and your PCB partner is going to be um, looking after the patient. Uh, so I'm going to be, I'll talk to you guys like your ACPs now because that's where you're headed anyway. I think you'll find um, your job as a, as a PCP quite interesting as you're going through this uh, program because you're going to start to see things through a, an ALS pair of eyes and start to think about, um, you know, what you would do as an ACP on these calls. So uh, patients with respiratory distress, um, how often do you need to attend? Really, the only time would be when the patient requires ventilatory assistance uh, or has a potential to require ventilatory assistance. So, um, so does the patient have the potential to deteriorate? That's the big question. Um, cardiovascular, so the non-hypovolemic um, hypotension patient can be easily managed by PCP partners, no reason. How many of you um, already start IVs? Curiosity. Okay, everyone but Toronto. Amazing. <laughs> it's funny, Toronto is not nearly as progressive as Toronto thinks it is. When I say Toronto, I don't mean you. I mean, cost, yeah. I mean the bigger machine of Toronto. Yeah. Is that going to change anything with our Yeah, so I wish I could say yes, but no. So, um, um, the, uh, in fact, even the theory for IV therapy, um, I think some of it will be on screencasts that you can review. And, and um, you guys have probably done it in school, in PCP school. Where did you guys go to school, by the way, just out of curiosity? I did the U of T uh, Centennial. Centennial? Okay, cool. Was Walter th there when you were there? Or um, so was Walter that post-Walter? Was, Walter was there. Um, actually, when I was there, Walter wasn't a doctor to Barrett's yet. He right. Was getting his doctorate, and then he was a coordinator for like a year, and then Dave took over. Oh, okay. Um, so that all kind of happened when I was. Yeah. Dave. And how about you, Adam? Humber. Humber, good. Humber's a great place. Was uh, uh, Craig McCalman and Craig Richard Alvarez were there? Aaron. Yeah, and Aaron. Is Aaron still there? As of right now, I don't know. Yeah. Any other Centennial grads? No, that's it. Yeah, you went to Centennial as well? Yeah. yeah. Say I recognize you. Yes, you're in the same class. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's just you had hair. Yeah, I'm <laughs> 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 you, know, you know the class is big when two classmates barely recognize <laughs> each other. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I went to Centennial as well, 1983, 84. Don Klein's retired. I heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don got me into trouble. I'll have to tell you that story at some point. Okay, so uh, yeah, in a in a medical patient who's hypotensive, um, uh, PCP. There's no reason why PCP can't attend on that call. You know, the typical is a post syncable patient or um, the non bleeding patient. Um, but if they're um, if they're hemodynamically stable or if it's a blood loss. Um, situation, the ACP, you should probably attend as the ACP. 
and as bizarre as that sounds, because if, if your partner is PCP autonomous and they can fluid resuscitate, there's really no benefit to having an ACP in the back of the ambulance, but uh, it's really about the optics of it. And, and it's not just a base hospital optics, it's a public optics too, right? So, so if, if something happens with a patient, let's say they die, and let's say you being in the back wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever, um, the public is going to look at that, that'll go through, uh, um, you know, a coroner's inquest, it might even go through civil litigation, and the public will just not be able to comprehend why the PCP was in charge of that patient and not the ACP. They just will not comprehend that. So, unfortunately, no matter how tired you are, no matter how sick you are of the politics, no matter how much you know about, you know, whether the patient would have whether you would have made a difference or the fact that you know that you wouldn't have made a difference um, doesn't make a difference as, par as far as public perception goes. I have a thing where um, if I'm on a call and I've got someone who's quite sick and a firefighter says, do you want one of us to come in the back with you? Um, in my mind, I look at two things. Number one, don't need you. Number two, you said that in front of the family and if anything goes wrong and I don't have someone in the back, it's gonna fall on me, right? So I might just take you because public perception, right? Even if having you in the back makes no difference whatsoever, I may just take you anyway because in court, the family's gonna say, we suggested, you know, or the firefighter asked if they should go with him and maybe my child would be alive if the firefighter had gone with him. So I'll just bite the bullet and take them most of the time, purely uh, based on perception, nothing else. So I don't know what your, um, what your service is like, I know that sounds bizarre, right? But um, I don't know what your service is like, but um, most services, if you're a PCP ACP crew and you're dealing with a STEMI patient, the ACP should probably be in the back of the ambulance. The risk of sudden death is about 5%, it's pretty low. Um, what can you do for that sudden death that your partner can't do? Probably nothing. A PCP can defibrillate just as easily as you can, and if you got the pads on and you defibrillate within the first minute, your chances of getting a pulse back are like 98%. Um, so there's really no, probably no benefit to having the ACP in the back of the ambulance, but again, it's, it's if, if the first shock doesn't get the back and you know additional treatments required, uh, you should be in the back. So does anyone have a, uh, does anyone work for a service where if you go to STEMI and your uh, ACP, PCP crew or the PCP can attend on the way to the... Um, on a STEMI? And your, P and your ACP partner drove? Yeah. That's a risk. I wouldn't do that personally. <laughs> I wouldn't take that chance. But you... But yeah, sorry, go ahead. We're allowed to... We don't have to call unless the patient's vitally unstable. Yeah. Um, but if ACP's on scene, then they have to be in the back. They have to be in the back. Even if it's a stable study and just have an option from a hospital center, yeah. it has to be I think that's the way most services operate. Yeah, exactly like that. If you're on scene, you got to attend, and if it's interfacility, ACP yeah, has to attend. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Non-STEMI, it's a judgment call. I would have no issue with my, my PCP partner attending on a non-STEMI call, um, as long as they're hemodynamically stable and mentally not altered. And um, um, 
you know, have to think about does the patient have any potential for to deteriorate. So um, in terms of altered mental status, um, and uh, I started including, alt I don't know if does any, any of you guys use AMS as a short form? It's big in the US. You and I typically use level of awareness or level of consciousness, but in the US, altered mental status is the, is the big one. If you read res research papers, you'll often see AMS or altered mental status. So I've started incorporating that in my lessons just so you get used to the, the terminology. But um, in terms of altered mental status, um, if it's an overdose, ACP should probably attend. Um, if it's a reversible cause for altered AMS, like a hypoglycemic diabetic that you reverse with dextrose or, or glucagon, then PCP is perfectly fine. But if you're concerned about airway, either existing or potential problem with airway, then, um, then uh, ALS should attend. Just, but it depends on the cause of the uh, altered um, AMS, right? So, are the reversal agents required? Oops, there we go. Now, um, I'm not going to go through the OPQRST because I got complaints from the last ACP class about this. So, uh, I will just say this um, as a review for OPQRST. History taking has always been a, uh, a weak area for PCP students and, and um, ACP students as well in the lab. So. Uh, when you're in the lab doing scenarios, if you're good at consistently getting a good history of a history of presenting illness or injury and um, uh, doing a proper head-to-toe exam and doing a appropriate OPQRST, and typically we do OPQRSTs for chest pains and abdo pain, not for much else, um, then you'll do well. But it's it seems to be a, a weak area for for a lot of people still. And the only thing I want to say about uh, the OPQRST, and you can read these slides at your leisure, but um, the key things are, you know, especially when it comes to things like um, abdo pain, which can be very vague, is uh, recognizing the abdo pains that are potential surgical candidates. And, and the classic is sudden, severe, constant. That's really all I think you need to remember. Any pain that's sudden, severe, or constant is a medical uh, emergency surgical candidate until proven otherwise. Um, so let me just go through the rest of this. Um, uh, you know, what, whatever, what provokes and palliates pain, people often forget this one. Um, and that's really all I want to say about OPQRST. Um, in terms of, um, in terms of severity, um, the base hospitals, well, it's interesting. Um, the medical directors for the longest times, uh, for the longest time, I found immensely frustrating when it came to pain management because there are very specific criteria about when you can treat pain. Um, and uh, now they've uh, just said pain, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> so uh, um, it was interesting because for a while there was, there was a physician um, who was going around uh, to these uh, elective CMEs and um, talking about pain management and that uh, paramedics need to advocate more for the patient and manage pain. And, and the paramedics were saying back to this doc, well, that's nice, but in order to manage all these patients you think we should be managing for pain, we need to patch to a base hospital position. And that takes time and uh, it's just not worth the effort. 
uh, for these patients. So they've modified the medical directors quite a bit. Now, uh, you know, you're basically you can treat any pain, but you have to think carefully about, you know, what pain you should treat with um, analgesia and what pain you should treat with other interventions, you know. So uh, if I get someone with a femur fracture, for example, uh, if I can get a Sager on fairly quickly, the Sager goes on first before I start loading them up with narcotics. Unless the pain is so intense that they need the narcotic before the Sager traction, but it's, how many of you put Sager tractions on? Okay, about uh, half, half of you. Um, it's amazing how much a Sager reduces the pain for a mid-shaft femur fracture in most patients. And I've had patients after putting a Sager on, they just said, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I still try to convince them to take some analgesia because, you know, it could be half an hour, an hour before they get something once they get in the hospital. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I think about other interventions first. Uh, this we've already talked about. So, yeah. Um, in terms of nausea and vomiting associated with, uh, with pain, the only other caveat here would be pain that presents before vomiting is considered, um, uh, we have to think about that patient as a potential surgical candidate as opposed to the, the uh, vomiting that happens before the pain. So, um, urgency to defecate, this, that's always a good one. It's one of my favorites, you know, when you get someone with chest pain who says they have to have a bowel movement. Um, I remember having an exacerbated COPD or COPD or a CHFer. It might have been a CHFer who um, we walked into his house and he, as soon as he saw us, he got up from the chair and walked to the bathroom. And I'm trying to stop. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. And uh, so I had to stand there in the bathroom while he was having a dump, um, which is always fun. But um, causes of, uh, you know, urge to, to uh, defecate, um, uh, there's a whole long list of potentially lethal causes, uh, including MI. And uh, you, you know why people with MIs get an urgency to defecate, right? Fight or flight? Fight or flight, exactly, fight or flight response. Um, so, um, oh, hang on a sec, let me just, uh, well, I'll tell you the, I told you about my STEMI when we met during orientation um, last November. Uh, when we got to uh, the PCI center and uh, I, they put me in the PCI unit, everything was fine up until then. Um, I wasn't worried, it was no big deal. It was like, STEMI, okay, big deal. Let's just open this up and put a stent in there and get on with the rest of my life. But. Um, uh, when I got to the PCI unit, um, the nurse said, "There's someone else in the unit in the uh, in the PCI unit, so you're gonna have to wait about 45 minutes." And that's when I started to get antsy. It's like, get him out of there! Like I need to get in there. <laughs> you know, like time, like time is myocardium here. Like I had to go to the local hospital first, and now I'm here. And okay, we've wasted enough time, and like I, you know, I need this now. Uh, but I needed to have a bowel movement probably an hour earlier and I didn't go and now it was getting fairly urgent and so I told the nurse I need to have a bowel movement she said no she said if no you're not going to the bathroom 
she said, if you need to do it in a bedpan here, then we'll do it there. And I thought, no way am I having crap in my own bed. Um, and uh, I said, look, this is not a sympathetic response. Like, I'm not going to die on the toilet on you. I just need to have a poop. I've needed to have one for over an hour now. <laughs> and trust me, this is not a fight or flight thing. And she said, no. Like, um, and I said, well, you can come with me. Um, and she said, no, sorry, you're not doing that. So uh, I held it in through the entire procedure. And yeah, <laughs> it wasn't easy, trust me. And uh, I'm just telling you this so you're sensitive to your patient's needs, you know. <laughs> when, when they're an off-duty paramedic and they're telling you they need to have a crap, you know, just, and they're not diaphoretic, they're not short of breath, they're not nauseated, you know, just maybe can give some consideration <laughs> there. <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, people do um, have fight or flight responses when they're having MIs because for someone who's never had uh, an MI or has never experienced chest discomfort whatsoever, uh, it can be a pretty horrifying thing, right? It can be a near-death kind of experience for them. And, uh, and they do um, go into cardiac Has anyone had a cardiac arrest on the toilet? Yeah. Anyone had a cardiac arrest in the bathroom where you couldn't get into the bathroom because the body was up against the door? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you just pronounce from outside the door when you're in Sudbury, like in, uh, like outside of Sudbury, in, in a rural area? Baseboard heater, that's a good one. Um, so, you know, what are you doing now as a PCB? You're giving Ketorolac, you're giving acetaminophen, you're giving ibuprofen. What's going to stop the um, medical advisory committee from saying, why don't we just give you fentanyl? Why don't we just give you morphine? You know, just learn about the drugs and give them. I don't know. So again, you wonder, you know, is there really much point to PCP, ACP level these days? Uh, medical history, duh, 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 I think we can skip through that. Um, the only thing I wanted to say about uh, the directives, and I've used the adenosine directive as an example. So um, directives are not easy to write. I've helped in writing them in the past. Who writes the medical directives? Paramedics. They give them to the uh, medical director and the base hospital docs, they go through them, they look at them at the MAC level and they approve them, they might tweak them, but who writes them? It's paramedics who write them. They're not easy to write. My, but um, the one uh, flaw that, that I take issue with with the medical directives uh, is that um, they list contraindications which are not really contraindications, they're more um, conditions. Um, so to think of one off the top of my head. So like fluid resuscitation, a contraindication being like blood pressure over 90, but the indication is hypertension? Right. 
Yeah, exactly. So, so giving fluids for that level of blood pressure is not truly a contraindication. It's just not indicated, right? But they call them contraindications. So uh, that's a bit of a, a flaw. I personally, I think is in in the directives. The other flaw is that um, they don't list all of the contraindications. So when you're studying pharmacology with Frank, um, you're going to find out that there are, you know, for any given drug that you carry, there are contraindications that are not listed in the medical directives, and there are precautions uh, that are not discussed or listed whatsoever, and you should be familiar with those. You should know what could potentially happen when you're giving any given drug, and the base hospital expects that you actually know the stuff, even though it's not in the directive. So I'll give an example. Um, when you look at adenosine, um, you know, the contraindication for adenosine, uh, according to your directives, is, um, so allergy or sensitivity to adenosine, yeah, contraindication, no question whatsoever. Sinus tack or atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, they list it as a contraindication. Those are not contraindications. You just, you wouldn't give it to someone with a sinus tack or AFib or a flutter. It's, it's not really a contraindication. You just wouldn't give it. it just wouldn't make sense. You know, if the patient's got a broken femur, you don't put a splint on their arm. You know, that's what, to me, that's what that's like saying. Uh, patients taking dipyridamol or carbamazepine, okay, and the reason why is that um, dipyridamol or carbamazepine increase the half-life adenosine. So with adenosine, uh, you know, you have this SVT, which doesn't look at all like that. <laughs> um, and then when you give adenosine, they go asystolic, and then they, you know, go into some sort of rhythm, right? Um, if you, if the patient's on uh, dipyridamol or carbamazepine, the risk is they go asystolic and they stay asystolic and require CPR. So um, now what they don't list is Agronox. And so Agronox is a combination of uh, ASA and dipyridamol. You gotta know that, right? If you look at the patient's meds and you see Agronox, you're probably not gonna see on the pill bottle uh, ASA and dipyridamol, or you may not see it. All you're gonna see is Agronox, and you need to know that that's contraindicated. So it'll be potentially lethal for those patients. Um, and uh, bronchoconstriction on exam uh, is another one, because adenosine can cause bronchospasm or exacerbate bronchospasm. But in the CPS, uh, bronchospasm is usually listed as a precaution. So, you know, give adenosine cautiously with a patient who's bronchospastic. Right? Uh, but under your directives, it's listed as a contraindication. So just be aware that uh, the medical directives don't contain all of the contraindications, and they don't contain any of the precautions. And what they sometimes list as contraindications are not truly contraindications, they're just more indications or um, you know, you, you give a drug under these circumstances, but not under, under any other circumstance. So, but they've listed it because th they just, in some ways, they just don't want you to think about giving adenosine to someone who's in a sinus tack uh, or a February flutter, but you should know that, uh, right, without having to think about it. Um, on exam, uh, in terms of exam, really there's um, there's no difference between what you'll do and uh, as a PCP and an ACP. And in terms of patch format, now, 
Um, uh, Sunnybrook, I don't know what other base hospitals do, but Sunnybrook uh, will give you a set of medical directives that has their patch form. Um, do other base hospitals do that? They give you a patch form uh, with the sequence in which they would like you to provide information? No? Okay. Well, so in this program, we're going to be program. Uh, we're going to be um, following the Sunnybrook medical directives essentially for the most part. They're pretty generic, uh, probably pretty consistent with uh, the directives under all other base hospitals as well. Uh, and um, uh, they have a patch form. So I would take a look at that patch form to see what sequence um, they would like the information in. And you'll get, um, I think in the second semester, your assignment will be uh, a patch. and. Um, um, it's important to follow a certain sequence of information for consistency. Um, I'll just mention ETA. So ETA is based on um, uh, where you are right now and how long it'll take you to get to the hospital. Don't th a common mistake medics make is uh, they think of their ETA in terms of the driving time, and that's a, that's a big mistake, right? So if you're five minutes drive from the hospital, your ETA is not five minutes if you're on the 12th floor of an apartment. Your ETA is more like 20 minutes, at least 20 minutes, right? So, um, uh, so think about how long it's going to take you to get from where you are to your ambulance, to load the patient in the ambulance, for your partner to get in behind the driver's seat, for you to drive to the hospital, for you to park the ambulance, for you to pull the patient out of the ambulance, for you to get into triage and have the patient triaged, and then do transfer care at the bedside. That can be 45 minutes for a five minute drive. Right? So, so if you're thinking you need an order for something, and um, um, you really think that patient needs that order, try to give a realistic ETA as opposed to the drive time. Because if you say five minutes, the doc's going to say just transport. And then 45 minutes later, you're transferring to the hospital bed. Right? And that's patient's been deprived of that treatment that entire time. From um, a uh, triage perspective, we'll talk about triage in a different area, but triage is a PCB skill. And um, when you arrive at a multi-casualty incident as the ACP, oftentimes, you know, your perception is I'm the highest medical authority, I better triage this, this call. But if the call's already been triaged, you should not be triaging. Right? That's a PCP responsibility and in fact, if you arrive on scene as a first uh, advanced life support unit and there's a PCP crew on scene and they haven't triaged, I would say to the PC lead PCP, you need to triage the scene. Um, unless they know who's the most critical and should be transported first, right? Um, and um, if you arrive on scene, if you're the ACP on scene first and it's a triage situation, and the next, typically when you're triage, you're the first crew in and the last car out. But if you're the only ACP car on scene and you've got a, a seriously injured patient and the next crew to arrive is a PCP crew, then you can hand off the triage to them. So give them a triage report, let them take over, you transport the critical patient, right? Because when it comes to trauma, time of injury to time of surgery is, is key. Uh, da, da, da. And that's it for sort of ALS versus PCP assessment. Any questions about that sort of thing?